Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joined on the line later today by Stefan Jones. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, give you a quick recap of the week that was, all kinds of fun stuff going on, starting with getting out of the quarantine for a little bit, took the family to beautiful Muncie, Indiana. And if you know nothing about Indiana geography, Muncie is a little city. It's about 45 minutes to an hour northeast of Indianapolis, and it's actually where I grew up. So my parents still own our horse farm up there, even though they are no longer living there. They are still in ownership of the place, and they're working on fixing it up so they can eventually sell it. So we went up there and took the kids on a little trip down memory lane, showed them the little house that I grew up in, which, you know, as Jess and I were looking at it, I realized that's probably the size of our basement now. Um, So very humble beginnings looking at that house and just all the memories that come from living somewhere for 18 years. So saw the old house, saw the old farm, got to show them all of the horse stalls and all of the work that we had to do when we were growing up as kids. I mean, I was joking around, but not really. I mean, I was basically shoveling horse poo when I was five years old. I was bailing hay when I was 10. So just trying to give my kids some perspective on how I grew up, how much different it was 30 some years ago when I was a kid growing up. And uh, so I think it was a lot of fun. They enjoyed that. Took another 45 minutes to an hour, showed them Ball State, which is where obviously Jess and I both went to school. It's where we met. So it was a really fun day. I think they enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, something I'd continue to do, you know, over the years, I'd love to continue to take them back and just show them like, look, this is where Jess and I, you know, mom and I came from, Uh, give you a little bit of insight. Jess is obviously, she's from a little bit further away, but neither here nor there, just to give them insight as to the way that we grew up. And they've got a lot of privileges. They've got a lot of advantages that Jess and I didn't have growing up. So It was fun and definitely going to do that again in the future. Had an awesome Mother's Day. Pretty low key, really. Can't go out to brunch and that sort of thing. So we made a a nice brunch here for Jess. And then the evening, Kendall and I made an apple crisp, which was fantastic. Jess found this like paleo apple crisp recipe that was amazing. No extra sugar or anything. It was just, you know, like cinnamon and some maple syrup. And oh, it was awesome. So we had that, and then I put all of my culinary skills to use, made some bacon wrap fillets, diced up some sweet potatoes, roasted those, roasted some veggies, just an awesome meal. And then you throw in the apple crisp with a little little bit of uh, vanilla ice cream at the end of the night. It was pretty fire. So appreciate her. We would not be functioning as a family unit, especially right now, if it wasn't for her. So definitely love and appreciate her. And She is the rock for Team Robertson. So with that being said, the cooking game has really been cranking up here lately. Tomorrow, Kendall and I are doing our cooking night. So every Tuesday we cook and tomorrow night we are doing chicken parm, which we've made before, but it is fire. So we're going to make some chicken parm, a little bit of pasta, and then she's into pesto bread. So we went out to uh, the grocery store today, got some pesto. So excited to cook with her. She's loving that home gym training, this has been an absolute godsend. And I know a lot of you listening in are kind of moving in that direction because I've gotten a lot of emails, a lot of DMs, people that are kind of going away from the gym and just trying to have some stuff to use at home. And man, it's such a lifesaver. Like 
I'll talk more later about why I'm busy right now. I'm not really comfortable talking about it just yet. <laughs> um, but in a couple weeks, I'll tell you why things are so hectic right now. But it's been such a godsend to have that in the basement. I can go down and I don't have a ton of stuff, right? I mean, I've got a rack. I've got like two kettlebells. I mean, it's pretty Spartan. But when you have the basic stuff and you get creative, like you can do a ton. And I think at some point I'll kind of chronicle some of the things that I'm doing because I feel like I'm getting great workouts. Even though I have a barbell, I'm not doing a ton of barbell-based stuff. Maybe a main or two here and there, but that's really it. And it's not traditional stuff like like squatting or deadlifting. Like my main the other day was that glute bridge floor press just using a barbell. So it kind of ties the whole body together, makes you feel like you're almost doing a decline, but with everything working as a unit. So, you know, just loving that and something I'm going to definitely be exploring more uh, over the coming weeks and months as my schedule cranks back up. I know I mentioned this a while back, but I'm excited here. Hopefully in the next couple weeks, get my guy Paul Rutan in. I got a breathing video and I know it sounds basic. I mean, I was talking to a parent today who wants to bring their child in to iFast when we reopen and just talking to them about breathing and why it's important. But I just, man, the more I'm on the internets and the more I'm on the gram and YouTube, people just don't get it when it comes to breathing. They're either making it way too hard or we're still talking about like belly breathing in the sense of just make a big Buddha belly. It's like, man, this is what I was saying like seven, eight years ago. And I don't claim to be like the all knowing in any way, shape or form when it comes to breathing. But I'd like to think I know a thing or two. And a lot of it's by the mistakes that I've made over the years. A lot of it's by humbling myself and continuing to learn about it. So if you're on the newsletter list, don't worry, you will already get it. If you are not on the newsletter list, come on, son, what are you doing? Get signed up. And if you're really just going to wait, eventually it'll be part of like a new autoresponder series. So if you sign up for the Robertson Training Systems newsletter, then you'll get access to this video. But excited to bring Paul in. I've got it kind of sketched out. I've been using either, you know, if I have downtime in the morning before the children wake up, I've been trying to do it then. Uh, If not, trying to take Finn on some longer walks gives me some time to kind of process and get my mind right. So excited to put that out there. So stay tuned for that. And then last but not least, doing some work on Complete Coach. Really excited about some additions that I'm going to make. If you're already in the group, it sounds like a like a cult or something. But if you've already purchased, I have a Facebook group and I've already kind of alluded to what I'm going to be adding because I like to either add or like renovate stuff each and every time. So really excited about some of the changes that are going on there. So first off, I got just a fire web designer, the guy that created the iFast website, the guy that created the RTS website, Andrew Palter is helping me with this because look, it's it's an expensive product, right? Like let's not mince words here. It's not like it's a $50 ebook. When I relaunch here in a couple months, it's going to be 800 on the insider's list, or it's going to be just under a thousand for, you know, people that aren't on the insider's list. So it's an investment and I get that. But before it's not that the website looked bad, but it just didn't look reflective of the quality of the product, the quality of the content. So really excited to have a website that kind of matches the look and feel of the course materials of the content. I mean, I still get DMs and emails almost every day from people that are like, oh, you know, I wasn't sure. I didn't think this would be worth it. And they're like, I'm blown away. Or I had one guy the other day that said he's bought so many courses, so many certs. And he said, this was the first thing that blew him away. So that makes me feel good. 
makes me feel like, you know, people are getting value out of that course. And that's what it's all about. I mean, if you've followed my stuff for a day, a month, a year, 10 years, hopefully you realize I'm in this for the long game and I'm in it to make people better. So really excited about where that's going. Uh, Stay tuned. As they say, stay tuned for more information, but really excited about where the complete coach stuff is going. So, okay, we're like eight and a half minutes in. I'm going to stop rambling. Quick break, and then we are going to get into this amazing podcast. I was really blown away by this guy, but really, really solid podcast with my guy, Stefan Jones. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill, and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple, restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As, where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you'll be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. Stefan Jones is a former professional cricketer who played for Somerset, Northamptonshire, and Derbyshire County Cricket Clubs. But nowadays, he's serious about sports performance and working in physical preparation to make some of the fastest bowlers on the planet. Now, before I say any more, let me say this. Stefan is a brilliant guy, and this is one hell of a show. So even if you know absolutely nothing about cricket, you're going to want to check this episode out. In this show, Stefan and I talk by talking about how cricket is played in case you're not familiar with the sport. But from there, we break down the biomechanics of bowling and talk about how you build a better bowler. Most importantly, we talk a lot about strength and why too much strength may actually limit performance in cricket as well as other sports. Like I said before, this is a really awesome episode and I think you're going to love it. But enough for me, let's do this. Stefan, man, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to chat with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name's Stefan Jones. So I'm an ex-rugby player, an ex-cricketer. So I'm the last dual professional to play in the UK, I think. 
not the world. Yeah. Dion Saunders used to do that as well, didn't he? And now I'm currently a director of sport in a in a school in Somerset, England, and I'm also a fast bowling specialist coach. So I travel the world coaching fast bowlers, teach him a lot about speed, really. And I'm with Rajasthan Royals in the IPL, which is, I think, the third biggest sporting event in the calendar behind the World Cup football and Olympics. Oh, so wow. it, yeah, cricket in India is incredible. And I'm fortunate to be head of fast bowling development for a, a very good franchise, the Rajasthan Royals. So it's a busy time combining my school director role here and traveling the world, but I wouldn't want it any other way, really. I love it, man. That's awesome. What originally led you to the world of physical preparation? Was it just prepping for your sport or what got you into this side of it? Well, I was always, so I'm a sports science graduate as well. I went to Loughborough University and Cambridge University. So I'm, okay. I've always I've always studied human performance because I'm very much of the mindset that I want to be in control of my destiny. So I wanted to uh, coach myself to improve. I wanted ownership of what I do. If I failed, it was my fault. So and that's not to undermine my coaches or my SNCs, but I needed to actually question them. It yes. Is actually right for me? And I needed the knowledge. Then I can decide then whether to go, oh, yeah, great, great, and not do it or go <laughs> right, right on. So I went down the route of coaching myself. So when I played... Early on in rugby, actually, I trained a lot. I did a lot of running. And the thing with rugby, it's a mass is important. Absolutely. It's like, like American football. But in cricket, it's not. And that, is, I'm sure, is going to come up in conversation. <laughs> so I didn't do strength training as such because I didn't want to get bulky and stiff for, for throwing, which is bowling. Yep. Yep. But then for rugby, they said you needed to put mass on. So I was caught caught in a tight space, really. So I, I went away, researched it, and then I become really a student of the game, student of human performance. And I coached myself. Then others would come in for help. And then as I retired then, 2010, I believe, I became S&C, uh, so I'm qualified, accredited. So it was all started with me wanting to be the best athlete out there, best yeah. And now it's to do with me wanting to be the best preparation coach in the world for my sport. I love it. I love it. So tell us a little bit about your career path. Obviously, you were super successful as an athlete. Talk to me about that transition from athlete to coach and then kind of your career path and where you're at now. Okay, So athlete to coach was was okay, really, because I became, towards the end of my career, I became more of a mentor. And because my knowledge in fast bowling and speed in particular was pretty good, that people would come and ask me questions and stuff. So I transitioned into a, a player-coach role yep. as a cricket. And then I wasn't really happy with that. So... Here's the thing for you. I'm not sure if it's like that in any other sport, but I'd imagine it is. Most coaches, okay, are ex-professional players. So, and they spout off the same stuff as their previous coach. Yeah. And their previous coach's knowledge is based on a coach education certificate platform that's been designed by ex-players. So, so I was there at the end of my career going, actually, I'm not going to be one of them. So I came out of the game. 
So I came out of professional cricket to go on this journey, on this quest, to fight the, find the right answer. What does it take to bowl faster based on sports science, based on data, based on facts, based on a sport like athletics, which is very data-driven. If you don't run sub-10, you don't have a career. Yeah. It's as well as that, dealing numbers. So I came out, and by coming out, I'm able now to experiment because I'm in a school, talented children. I've got a 1080, I've got four stacks, I've got contact grids, so I can experiment. Yeah. And then what has happened then, I've built my business, pay slab up, and people from around different sports, actually. I've got good contacts in baseball, sprinting have come in now because my knowledge is based on playing experience, coach education as such, sports science degree, and actually getting down and dirty and trying things for myself. So it's a, a you know, I'm a big James Smith fan, you know, yeah. a gov- governing dynamics of coaching. We we get on well. He loses me a few times. <laughs> yes. But we get on really well because that's it. It's all encompassing. You know, we're a complex biological system. And to just think that it's about technique, or it's about strength, gym work, whiteboard syndrome, and nothing else, then we're, we're mistaken, man. Yeah. What works for one, it might not work for the other. And I needed to know what the answer was. I love it. I love it. So let's start at the beginning, because I guarantee a lot of people in the U.S. don't understand the sport of cricket, or they've never seen it played before. So really quickly, could you just give us a brief overview of the sport, how it's played, basic rules, etc.? Okay, so you've got, in a nutshell, it's it's like baseball mm-hmm. with a mix of javelin in there. Yeah. So in terms of fast bowling itself is very much like a javelin throw, but you don't have to stop. You can go over a line, so it's uh, you can slow yourself down. That's why it's not so, as much force on the front foot contact. But you have to do that six times in a row, and you're bowling. So, which is a bowling, which is a throw in baseball, pitching yep. at batter, but it has to bounce. And then you do that six times, which is one over from from my end. Yeah. Then you go and have a rest and field. Yeah. And your mate the other end does the same to this end. And that goes on like that for, and they've got to hit some runs. The batter have got to get runs. You get them out by hitting the stumps or they hit and get caught. So a game can last Three hours. It's called a T20, which is the IPL and there's a few franchises in in America, I think. Or you can do a test match, which lasts five days. And on the end of those five days, you might not get a result. I know (laughs) that blows the mind of Americans. Yeah. It's like, but to be honest, it's a bit messed up for me as well, to be honest. But you play for five days from 11 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night doing the same thing. You know, in a T20 game, you cover 6Ks, man, in the game. But 5Ks of that is 20 kilometers per hour. It's very slow jogging. So that's, you know, based on catapult, based on GPS data, it was a real eye-opener for me in this tournament because it'd be surprising what we actually do. It's it's, There's no lactic acid involved in cricket, you know. (laughs) Let's not chase the burn, you know. Just because you're you're working hard, sweating, doesn't mean you benefit in cricket. Yeah, it's, it's that's fascinating. I remember, so I went to Australia twice, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and I got to watch, 
you know, literally different matches, different teams. And I was blown away because the guy that brought me over was a former cricket bowler. And so he would, he taught me the game a little bit. Again, this was 10 years ago, but I was just blown away to know that these test matches go five days. I was like, man, that's crazy. I couldn't imagine doing anything for five days straight, let alone playing a competitive match that lasts that long. That's the thing for you. Why, why the sport itself is a very unique thing. It's so explosive. You know, you have, when you bowl, because you run, you sprint in from about 30 meters. There's four times your body weight of force on back foot when it lands and 10 times on your front foot. Okay, so that is a lot of force. But you do that after a 30-second break. You do that six times. Then you do two minutes. And you might do a 30 reps. But then you might not do anything else for four hours. Yeah. But, but you're staying on the field, walking around, getting cold, and then the captain might turn to you, you're bowling, next ball. You have no time for a warm-up. You've just got to do it. Yeah. And it's, it's, like, it's an amazing, amazing thing when you actually break it down to its simple view of it, really. It's, it, that's why I, I, I love the thing, man. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And because the knowledge, in my eyes, is not quite up to the level that I would, spot, I would expect for professional sport, then, yeah, it's it's a good place to be me, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You found a, a great niche. So so let's talk about bowling specifically, because I know that's what you're most interested in. And I think yeah. that would be a great place to start. Explain to me in a little bit of depth, and you have already, but I'd like a little bit more just kind of nuance here. When yeah. somebody is bowling, what are the biomechanical positions or the biomechanical traits that they need to be successful? What kind of ranges of motion do they need to have available to them? Give us a little understanding of that. Because like you said, it is a lot like javelin. It may seem familiar in the States as somebody that pitches, but I'd love yeah. to hear your perspective and your rundown of it. Okay, so it's I've gone down the route of classifying my bowlers as well, and it's great that javelin and baseball pitching and sprinting and such has adopted it. So I classify my bowlers as hip and knee dominant. Okay. So, and then it's new. It's new in the world of cricket. And that will dictate how you train. So a hip dominant bowler, more often than not, is very tendon driven, very fascia, very connective tissue driven. So it doesn't need strength. Yeah. And but the other guys, the big bulky guys like myself, needs more range, needs more movement very strong on two legs and needs time, so needs to match their uh, technique up to their uh, fiber type, their neurotype, and the way they've built, you know, the fascia and the the Davis law, you know, lines of stress. And the more you do it as a youngster, the more more those stress lines become fixed. And it's hard then to change technique as you get older. So bowling is very, very specific because it's so stressful. It's very neural driven. It's about 80% tendon, 20% muscle. Ground contact times are sprinting. So it's a sprint, but not not the quality of a sprinter, although that is my aim. It's a sprint in with the right techniques and I've got seven key attractors that I look for, you know, the Franz Bosch terminology, but it's it's then careful separation between style and technique. There's lots of different styles out there, and they're the fluctuators, but there's key seven key techniques, attractors that the very best do. And you know, I've 
a profile of a 400 bowlers, you know. So the ground contact time is normal sprint, but probably a bit more with with fast bowlers, not as good. So 0.10, 0.12. And then it's about changing that, so horizontal vector to slightly vertical with your centre of mass jumping up off an impulse stride, which is a bit heavier contact, jumping up. So it's very much like a triple jump. Okay, yeah. So that's my way of thinking about it. That's a way we have to train. And to be honest, like most sports out there, people believe you're you're built in the gym, you know, an athlete is built in the gym. For me, we've gone down the wrong route there badly. It's especially, and it's rife in cricket. But then the ground contact time on on back foot, because it's about maintaining the momentum of centre of mass into front foot block. And the front foot being a brace front leg then catapults you over. Yep. So, But your back foot contact is about 0.10 seconds and front foot contact is about 0.5 seconds. So in effect, front foot contact is more about muscle fibers. Back foot contact is more about tendon stiffness and, yeah. and, and connective tissue and fascia. So it's about because, what is it? It's... The amortor, the coupling time of a, of a good athlete is about 0.10 second. That's a good athlete. But actually, that's the ground contact time on back foot contact when you bowl. Yeah. So it's like, so it's about thinking just correctly biomechanically about the sequence of fast bowling. But there are key attractors to it, like there are sprinters, brace front leg, hip shoulder separation, you know, take off. Uh, just under your centre of mass, not in front. So if you take off slightly in front, because you're a knee-dominant bowler who's over-squatted, is really strong concentrically, is really strong with a counter-movement jump, so you want your front foot to go in front of you to give you time to jump up. So more time more time you spend in the air, the less time you can put force into the ground. Yeah. So it's about running through the crease and it's there's nuances to it there's careful manipulation but it's it's a great skill because it's it's you can do it from a very very young age you know my daughter's 10 she's bowling but there's a great example of a long-term athlete development i've not coached her i've not coached her to bowl she's just come down here watched watched me coach looked at a bowling sequence and gone Okay, let's try that out. And <laughs> she cool. that she's worked it out herself. In the meantime, I coach her as an athlete. You know, depth jumps, I get them depth jumps, medicine balls, sprint, they've been on ten eighty. Funnily enough, she's playing uh, age group county state in, in America three years young. You know, wow. and it's it's not about that, but it's but just shows how the brain works, the intention action model. Give them a picture, let them work it out for themselves, develop them as an athlete. Let the structure sort of support the framework, the style that they develop themselves. I love it. I love it. So that's a great breakdown of like the lower half. The difference, at least from my understanding, they cannot bend the elbow, right? When they bowl, it's straight arm the whole time. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So, it's, so it, the arm speed, so rotational speed, it's very much not quite as explosive as, as 
baseball because they tend to be pitching. They tend to be stronger. I believe most of them are actually knee dominant because of the amount of strength work they do. But yep. I know certain franchises have contacted me and are going through down this route as well because ultimately it has to transfer. Yeah. You know, whatever we do have to transfer. And the, and the cricket ball weighs 156 grams. Rotational speeds, trunk rotation, about 1,000 RPM. Arm speed, about 700 RPM, wow. which is... Which is what a medicine ball throw. What's that? So that is equivalent to 30 meters per se- second. A good medicine ball throw is what? Seven, eight. A power clean is what? Two or three. So that's why I don't, I don't Olympic lift my athletes. Hmm. It serves no purpose for me. Yeah. No, that's great. So, so let's deconstruct things a little bit. Let's say you're evaluating an athlete and – Let's not even talk about the strength issue yet. Let's just talk about like basic ranges of motion or requisite mobility, flexibility. What do you do with an athlete that just physically can't hit the positions that you want? Where do you start with them? So the first, I do a 10-point profiling, uh, okay. pace profiling. It's, it's quite, it's got a good reputation now because I've got the, all the equipment. So I work their DSI out. So their dynamic strength index on the, on the force decks. So two legs, one leg, mid-thigh pull. So I work that out to start with. So whether they high percentage or low percentage. Most fast bowlers, if I'm honest, are low percentage. You know, they don't use hardly any of the strength that they have. Yeah. Because we've got a culture of lots of strength training. Actually, you know, you've got, you've got a long way to go to get to your, your strength ceiling. You're only at about 50% of your capacity at the minute. So that's what I found out. From there then, obviously there's outliers as well. From there, I work the jump profile, so the RSI, the reactive strength index. Can they utilize the energy, the eccentric forces in the, in the stretch shortening cycle? And then I put them on a 1080 sprint. And then I, I, I have a one kilogram, a three kilogram, a six kilogram load on the bowling sequence. And I can work out the coordination, the pattern, the forces, the speed, the power, because ultimately what I'm looking for is running speed. Mm-hmm. So running speed, so ball velocity is 20%, comes, 20% of it comes from the running speed. So if you want to bowl faster, unlike pitching, which that's why in pitching they have a slight flex extend to get a bit more momentum, but in bowling – you're actually, momentum is huge, is massive. So I want them to run in at about seven to eight meters per second, which for a sprinter is probably tempo running. Yeah. But, for, but for bowling, it's it, it, that's all we can cope with. Yeah. You know, I've had an eight meters per second bowler hitting front foot contact hard. And that's all I think. I think the front foot can cope with eight meters per second. That, that's it. So I work that out. Then I have a, a heavy ball, a light ball. I work out the discrepancies there. There should be a 10% difference from a light ball and a heavy ball. If it, if it differs a certain direction, there's a reason for it. If the light ball isn't bowled faster, at least four or five miles per hour faster than the cricket ball, it tells me that there's a constraint somewhere in the action whether it might be a technical flaw or might be the they need to desensitize the Golgi tendon in the posterior chain, eccentrically very poor, or actually 
now I'm beginning to understand. I'm going down the fascia route at the minute. I yeah. truly, I truly believe this is the future of sport. Sport, but there's people out there probably going, "I've been doing that for years, mate." <laughs> but I, I, I do think that's where, like, something like a throw-in or a sprint in the posterior, anterior, oblique chain, the fascia. That's where we're at, at and tendon. So it's it's all about using your body as a tool to bowl. But then, so this is after I see them bowl, obviously. First thing I do is watch them bowl. So I look at them bowl, then I do a kino sequence with them, and I I have seven points. So very much like Altis, Dampaf, Stuart McMillan, we have seven points, a kino sequence. And then they hit the ships. Best bowlers hit the right ships. It, It is extraordinary from the kids in my school to Jofra shows the best in the world at the minute, bowls 90 miles per hour consistently. They hit the, the correct chips with more front side mechanics instead of rear side on the, on the impulse stride, yep. small things like that. And then I look at it and go, why are they not hitting a tractor point one or two? Then we test. And then I go, actually, it just got no ability to utilize the stretch shortening cycle. He's no, no force management capacity. He has he, he, isometrically, eccentrically, very weak. Because in my eyes, concentric training for sport, irrelevant. Irrelevant. It does what sport happens too quickly for concentric to have an impact. Yep. It's Concentric is a consequence of putting more energy in. Yeah. Stabilizing it with an isometric contraction and then momentum. That's yeah. it. It that and especially fast bowling, which happens so quickly. And then identify then if they're not hitting the attractors, is it a motor learning issue? Is it hardware? Is it in the brain? Or is it software issue? So that's when skill stability, the technical intervention model comes in. But it's a it's a layering approach. People come in at different layers, but ultimately, technique underpins everything. You cannot run away from poor technique. If you want to change, if you want to change the appearance of a door without changing that hinge, the door will always break at that hinge. Doesn't matter how fancy the door is, and it's that's the same with fast bowling. You know, you can put all the fancy muscles on if you want to, but if your technique if you keep lateral flexion, if you're crossing over the base, which causes lateral flexion, and your back is going to get hammered. Mm. So it's so it, it's a foolproof, intertwined. What does what is the limiting factor of this person in front of me? Then I come up with an intervention plan. A lot of it is based on stiffness. That's a big thing for me at the minute. Is kids actually kids and professional athletes? They lack. A tendon stiffness. They, they, because of there's no physical education in schools. There's no repetition. There's no tendon tuning. There's no tendon training. Everything is sat. But then we think as strength and conditioning coaches, we're building athletes. But what we're doing is just building more of a knee dominant pattern. We squat. We cycle. We sit at school. So if so, on back foot contact when you land in bowling. So if it bends a lot, 
the same as pitching. If it bends a lot, that means you're spending a long time on back foot contact. So your back foot contact is going to be up towards the 0.20 seconds. But in the same time, my front leg is going that way because of momentum. So you need to be able to spin in, what is it? I think it's about 0.5, 0.3 seconds and face forward because that's the correct alignment. So if you bend too much, it doesn't happen. It allows a hip internal rotation, but it's too long. You can have the strongest hip internal rotation in the world, but if if your tendons are like pistons, it's just too long on rear side mechanics. And the back foot contact when you're bowling is, is a pivot. Business end is at the front. Yeah. It's a pivot. But because of poor training and poor technical intervention, the back foot, the rear side mechanics has become an issue that's prevalent in the game, I believe. But then, you know, it can be sorted if you match technique with anthropometry. Yeah. So if you if you're long on back foot contact, it's the same as javelin. If you're long with back foot contact, then you need to create more time upper body. Yeah. But becomes a long arm pull, then it sinks. It's synchronized up. But because it, that's seen as non-traditional bowling action, like a, a, a sling in javelin, it's not really coach. So one side is coaching knee dominance time, and the other side is coaching you to get release the. The release the ball quicker with a faster arm speed so it's just governing dynamics of coaching yeah so I'm, I'm interested do you think part of that is just due to the the overemphasis on strength development right now it's slowing uh, things down and it's affecting coordination in a negative way definitely okay i i, I don't think it, i can't believe you know i'm an snc myself yes. and i'm also a coach so i've got two hats on but I think that's what makes me unique in that I can see both sides. So if I'm an S&C and I've got a head coach who's going to judge me on how much my cricketer is squatting, how much he's improved, that's my KPI. Yeah. We both know it's not hard to make anyone stronger. Right. It, it, it's, it's not hard at all. But what's hard is making the transfer to on-field performance. That's hard. And that is when little small techniques come into it. And that's, you know, it's difficult to do. But then in performance, on-field performance, there's too many variables that can happen for it to actually positively reflect on your impact as an S&C. You know, you might have developed them awesome as an athlete, but when they go out, they bottle it. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're neurotype three as Thibodeau does, in neurotype mm-hmm. three and internalize everything and just freeze. So yeah. that's, so it's, but I see SSCs, I'm going to improve their deadlift, their bench, their squat. Look, boss, look what I've done. So it's a max, the gym whiteboard syndrome, that. But I, it's slowly turning, I think. They're slowly, people like, you know, Joel Smith, Alex Natera, McMillan, you know, these guys, Jonas the Dodo, these guys now are beginning to get actually, it's about speed. Yeah. Speed wins sport and speed is not built. Speed is not built in the gym. Part of speed is, yes. but not all of it. I love it. So talk to me. This is a great transition point because I know you're a big proponent and you're a big believer in isometric training. Yeah. So why are you a fan of ISOs and how do you use them in your programs? Okay. So I, I came up with a system based 
on Alex Natera's running specific ISOs, I think he calls it. Yeah. So I have three stages, and I'll always credit him. He gave me the, the, the oh, hang on, that, that looks awesome. So I got three stages. So that is an ISO hold, which is a yielding isometric, which is an ISO extreme, five-minute holds. Yeah. On two key attractors, back foot contact, front foot contact. So we we fix the position, okay, and then we do go through the stages. ISO hold, then you can add variability to it. You can hold it for longer. You can add weight to it to make it harder, to time under tension, all of that. Then we go to ISO push, which is an overcoming isometric. And then this is when it becomes a bit harder and your skill as a coach because, you know, as human beings, as athletes, we want a knowledge of result. We want to know that what we're doing is making me a better fast bowler. It's like, hey, Steph, what are you doing? I'm standing here in this position, pushing against the pin. What's this doing to me? How do you know I'm getting stronger? Yep. But then you put a picture of a bowler hitting front foot contact. And it's that position that we've locked down. Yeah. From an ISO push then. So we do it on four steps. Yeah. Or we or I I use a crane or G strength with Exergos. So or a crane as an affordable one. So it's always a number we're trying to beat. Yeah. Whatever, you know, whatever it is. From there we've had a bit of dynamic component to it, so it's an isodynamic. Then we go to ISO catch an eccentric component to it. Then we go to ISO react where we use the full stretch on in cycle. So there's a five layer approach for two key nodes of the bowling action. And so an isometric works because you're 10% stronger in an isometric contraction and you activate 5% more muscle fibers. So when you're doing, when you're doing grooving, so it's strengthening, specific strength, you know, special strength, all this bondage. I do it all. So it would sit in SP, SDE, depending on what stage you are. So for me, there's seven ways. I use seven ways to stabilize technique. So I stabilize the attractors. I create the feel. I overload it. So I use exogen wearable. It's a very good light wearable training. Then manipulate the time under tension actually create a feed the mistake so actually making making the body correct itself you know if you yeah. have when you squat if your knees come in okay you put bands on to bring you in to make it worse but actually you know that's not right the pain yeah. of that not right so it actually corrects itself and pulls itself out the same with with the exogen with bowling you know when they bowl the lateral flex so what i do i load this side to take them further with weights the body doesn't want, the body doesn't like pain. It'll <laughs> correct itself, especially yep. especially if you slow it down. Then I add variability. You know, I, I'm a big on second-gen contrast training, complex training, all that, you know, where you're contrasting, and that would be stage four, actually, of the complex skill. So skill to change technique you need to be as close to the full sequence as possible. So I superset. So I superset the skill stability with full bowling. Okay. That 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 is how I can create change. You know, to to have a technical session, just do it. That is motor learning. But to get motor performance, you know, you need transfer. Yes. And the, 
the smaller we can keep that window, that transfer window, the more chance it is of grooving a new pattern or a new motor engram. But actually, if it's just about small stabilising, then it'll get in there easier because, you know, I'm sure you've seen it as well when you get coaches doing like tech bodyweight technical work and it's not going to work you have to you have to develop a new pattern a new motor engram it has to be different yes it has to be harder it has to be variable it, it, you know all this stuff create the feel and overload it for you to develop a new snow track in that field because yeah. if you keep doing the same same thing it's just going to go actually that's no different to what I'm doing now. So I'm going to go that way, actually. Right. I'm, I'm not changing my technique. So it's it's a careful. That's why my stuff works, because it's a synergy, synergistic partnership between S&C and motor learning, technical. Put them together. Come up, look at a part of the action that doesn't work, and then go, how can I do that with my S&C head on? Can I get a cable there? Can I put a weighted vest on there? Or can I hop there? Or can I hold that isometrically? And then you, with time, going through those four stages of learning, you're going to make it unconscious skilled with purposeful repetition. I love it. I love it. So one other thing that I know you've talked about a couple times before, as well as in this show, is the skill stability model. So yeah. could you just tell us a little bit that about that as a whole and how that fits into your overall programming approach? So the skill stability, as, as, as I just covered here now, is just, it's about identifying. It's about isolating, constraining, overloading, and repeating parts of the action. Okay. That, that is the model. Okay. And then you fix the positions. You create the feel, you create overload on those two positions, and then you go through the stages. But the key point is you, you need to start on ISO hold. You need time under tension. You need to hold front foot contact for five minutes. So it's like 500 reps. I don't know. I've got data to show it, but it's just holding it isometrically is grooving that pattern. But then you need to put some force into there with some ISO push through a pin yep. to create, you need to make it a bit more specific, but a concentric. So we, I have a lunge variation. Then it's a, so an ISO catch front foot contact. So imagine a pitcher who's on front foot contact. So you isolate that position and then you drop yourself down off a box. So I came up with that. So it's like an altitude drop in a specific skill position. And then from there, then, can be a depth jump, so it's an ISO react. So you drop and you explode up. Yep. So that is the skill stability, and it's being used in baseball, javelin now, which is awesome. Love it. Love it. Okay, big question time, my friend. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Stephen Jones one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be? You know what? It's I'm happy where I am at the minute. Yeah. I, I'm, ha I'm happy in life. I, I'm seen as that maverick. That, that guy who's looking outside the box, but actually, I keep I, people keep looking over to see. Oh, he's talking sense here. He's <laughs> sense. So for me, trust my instinct. Yes. You know, yeah. trust my instinct and go with it. I've listened to a lot of opinions in the past, and actually, the only opinion that matters is my own. 
you know, and and now, you know, as my profile increases around the world, people have their opinions on me. Is that funny enough? I'm either an S and C for some, or am I the a too science geeky technical driven for others? <laughs> right. What am it's like, but that's an opinion, and people are entitled to their opinion. At the end of the day, it's just words. I have facts. I have data. I know exactly the numbers that the very fastest bowlers in the world do and compare it with my 10-year-old kids here. I know what the attractors are for fast bowling. So I deal in a big thing for me is assess, don't guess. So I know. So trust my instinct. You know, trust my instinct. Surround myself with radiators, you know, not drains. You yes. know, you want to surround yourself with people who inspire me. And actually a big thing for me, if I'm the most knowledgeable person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Yes. That's how I go about things. You know, I have an in, an SNC here who was my intern, was a pupil at school. He's incredibly intelligent now, but he's 23 years of age. I do stuff and I, his name's James Key. I do stuff. And I lis- he listens to me and then he questions me and I'm going, hang on, who are you to question me? You know? <laughs> but then thinking, I'm going, actually, he- he's right. He's making sense. Yeah. So it's always surrounding yourself with people who inspire, people who offer you something and people who make you better. That- that's-, that's a big advice I would give myself if I was starting out again. I love it. I love it. Okay, my friend, last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So for... Fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you'd like. All right? Yep. Number one, what's your career highlight so far as a coach? Coaching the Rajasthan Royals in the IPL. Love it. That Love is, it. Yeah. You, you can't, for me, that is, that says, you know, you get international cricket, but the IPL is the best inter- international cricket cricketers playing in a team. So for me, it's above international cricket. I love it. Number two, what was your career highlight as an athlete? In 2001, the whole season actually, and the whole season was a great lesson for me how to train. You know, I did Bill Phillips, Body for Life. Oh, I yeah. Got, I caught really low body fat, 9%. I run a lot. You know what? I did a lot of aerobic training. I didn't do any had, hardly any weight training. It was very basic. I threw medicine balls, weighted balls. I pulled 90 miles per hour. I got 100 wickets that year. And the Lord's final, 2001, I helped my team, Somerset, win the, win the cup. And it's, but then going back to your previous question, I then began to listen to other people. Yeah. Instead of going, actually, 100 wickets this season is okay. Let's do it again next year. Instead of going, let's get 102 wickets. So it's, but that was my highlight, Lord's final, 2001 for Somerset against Leicestershire. I love it. Number three, if you could give one piece of advice to an up-and-coming cricket coach, right, somebody that wants to work with other cricket players, what would that be? Become an essency. Learn how the human body works and learn how the brain works. That is a big thing. It ultimately starts with the brain, the central nervous system, the brain telling me to move my legs and move my arms. But not enough coaches understand about neurotransmitters, you know, neurotyping with TIB and how actually neurotransmitters affect how we how we perform. You know, as a child, if you keep doing stuff for for your baby, they'll never develop that dopamine system. They'll never become 
dopamine sensitive for that re- reward mechanism. Yep. And yep. that correlates with actually not being very explosive and fast as you grow up. Mm. It, it, there's a direct correlation there. So that that is... I would understand how we work, man. It's not about it's not about the the tactical aspect of it. There's a reason why you can't do what you want to do, and it's either mental or it's either physiological. So we need that knowledge to ultimately underpin tactical skill. Yep, I love it. Okay, last but not least, number four. What's next for Stephen Jones? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything? I'm going to continue on my on my journey. I'm going to continue to try and learn something every day. Big thing now is fascia for me, and I'm going to. I want to then coaching for me is not about sort of watching my my players play on the field and watching it and as the game goes on. That's not coaching. You know, that's experience playing. I've done that. I've done it for 20 years. It's behind. It's it's developing systems. It's developing pathways. I want to lead organizations that ultimately control the future of fast bowlers, whether that is in a certain country. So then that's about leaving a legacy, having an impact that I know will, you know, put them on a good journey and good pathway in their life. That's where I want to go. Coach education. That's, it's hard for me. You know, I did a webinar yesterday. There was 80, 800 people listening. It yeah. was so that's 800. So then those 800 can go away and coach the other 800. Yeah. So if I arm a few coaches with the correct knowledge, they can then spread the word. So it's about coach education in the pace lab system way of coaching fast bowlers. I love it, man. Well, Stefan, you've been amazing to chat with today. Where can my listeners find out more about you and everything you're doing? Uh, so this, I got my new website coming up. But so Pace Lab is my company. I'm heavily into social media, Instagram, Pace Lab, but that's Stefan Jones 105 and Twitter. And I also do cricketstrength.com with a friend of mine, Ross Dewar. So there's lots out there. I'm I'm happy to share knowledge. You know, it's I'm happy to share knowledge when people then acknowledge where it's come from. Absolutely. I don't like. I don't like copiers, but that, that, that's where it is. Stefan Jones 105 on Instagram and Twitter. I love it. Well, I'll make sure we get those in the show notes. And again, Stefan, thank you so much for your time, man. I truly appreciate it. Pleasure. Nice to talk to you. All right, my friends, that does it for this week's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Stefan is an awesome guy. We had some issues kind of getting this coordinated. You know, I don't know if I was canceling or he was canceling, but I mean, we've had this on the books off and on for like three or four months. So really excited to get him on. I thought it was an awesome show. Like, I don't know a ton about cricket, but I feel like I took a ton of good stuff away from the episode. And I hope you did as well. Now, As you know, my big focus for the next month or two is trying to break the 30K downloads per month. Now, you break that down, it's about 1,000 downloads a day. Consistently, I'm around 850. Love to get it to 1,000 because that means the show is getting exposed to more and more great trainers and coaches such as yourself. So if you could help me out in any way, shape, or form, whether it's sending this episode to 
a friend via email, posting it on social, whatever you can do to help spread the word would be greatly appreciated. Because again, I want more people to be exposed to people like Stefan, to be people like Alex that we had on the show last week. So anything you can do to help, greatly, greatly appreciate it. So I am rambling. I'm going to cut it off here. My friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.